Okay. Well, I find one of the most morally salient aspects of the threat to people's basic interests posed by severe poverty to be just how cheaply that threat could be prevented um, relative to the overall level of global resources if there were an institutionally coordinated response to the problem. Given the scale and complexity of the threat to basic interests posed by severe poverty, an adequate response to it does require um, coordinated action of a level of complexity that can only be achieved by the institutional specification and allocation of a schema of duties and regulations, compliance with which would end severe poverty. But on widely held empirical assumptions that have been endorsed by um, many economists of the... um, World Health, uh, uh, the, um, and so on. There is a multiplicity of schema of duties that would achieve this um, at small cost to the corresponding duty bearer. By severe poverty, I mean lacking a realistic opportunity to earn or obtain a subsistence income. So I'm talking about falling below the international poverty line, which is defined as the line beneath which a minimum nutritionally adequate diet plus essential non-food requirements are not affordable. The complexity of the causes of severe poverty shouldn't um, obscure the fact that, um, as we know, of the 4.6 billion people that fall below the more slightly more generous $2 a day international poverty line, even if we take that um, slightly higher level, they together have only 1.3% of global wealth. So what I'll argue in a nutshell is that our ongoing shared failure to prevent the blighting and destruction of of persons' lives from severe poverty amounts to the discarding of those lives and thereby constitutes the violation of a basic human right. It follows that a condition on minimally just global and domestic social institutions is that they specify, allocate and enforce a schema of duties compliance with which would um, abolish severe poverty. Before this institutional response has been achieved, individual affluent agents are under a shared general duty of justice to bring it about. Uh, I'm going to be focusing mainly on the positive duties um, to eradicate severe poverty, but I'll briefly talk about the negative duties not to inflict severe poverty as well. Um, My argument um, is very simple. Um, I begin from a deep feature of prevalent moral thinking that there are general perfect positive duties of justice to perform easy rescues in emergencies. Um, Not everyone takes this to be a duty of justice, but um, it is widely held to be a duty of justice. So, for example, there is widespread recognition that there's a general positive duty of justice to administer emergency medical care to illegal immigrants. So even people that are um, held not to be entitled to a whole range of um, citizenship rights grounded in membership of a reciprocal scheme are held to have a general human right to emergency medical care. Um, And what I'll argue is that the fundamental underpinning of this right um, also grounds a shared general duty of justice to abolish severe poverty. Now, 
Well, although it's a deep feature of common sense moral thinking that in easy rescue scenarios, the agent on the scene is under a strict duty of justice to perform the easy rescue. Um, another deep feature of prevalent moral thinking is that duties of justice have to be fully defined requirements owed by a particular agent to a particular right holder that that individual can completely discharge. Right? So there's a one-on-one -on -one correspondence between right holder and um, addressee. So on this view, we're only under a duty of justice if we can be singled out as specifically responsible for fulfilling that duty. And if the requirement is specific and one that we can individually completely discharge. And a striking feature of easy rescue scenarios is that the agent on the scene, the bystander, can be singled out as specifically responsible for rescuing a particular individual in dire straits. The required action is clear and obvious. Um, in Peter Singer's very famous example, it involves pulling the um, drowning child out of the pond. And it's a delimited requirement that can be completely discharged by that individual agent. Um, but duties to aid those suffering severe poverty, of course, feel very different from this. They're ongoing and um, open-ended. And an individual agent can't possibly discharge them to everyone whose basic interests are threatened by severe poverty. It's standardly inferred from the fact that they're not individually dischargeable um, to everyone, that they can't be owed to everyone. Actually, that's the basis of Nora Neal's um, famous Kantian argument against there being a general human right to subsistence. Um, in addition, what help we should give is not completely defined, though a lot of admirable work has been done on um, what kind of NGOs are the most efficient, as we've been hearing. Um, so the individual agent can't be singled out as specifically responsible for administering a specific form of help to any particular destitute individual. And it's commonly inferred from this that these can't be duties of justice. Indeed, um, several Kantian moral theorists have appealed to this difference between the nature of duties of easy rescue and the nature of our obligations to those whose basic interests are threatened by severe poverty to argue against Peter Singer's um, account of the stringency of our obligations um, to those suffering severe poverty. They've argued against the analogy he draws between the two kinds of scenarios. Singer um, argues that our duties to those, in, um, to those whose basic interests are threatened by severe poverty are comparable to our obligations um, to rescue the drowning child. And a common response has been, well, they're fundamentally different kinds of duties. One is a duty of justice owed to a particular individual. The other is an imperfect <coughs> duty of virtue. And I'll argue that you can actually strengthen Singer's argument by taking them both to be duties of justice. So what I'm going to argue is that this dichotomy um, that is a deep part of our common sense moral thinking um, and also of Kantian moral theory between... Um, Duties of justice in easy rescue scenarios and um, duties of beneficence, or um, in Kantian terminology, duties of virtue, to those whose basic interests are threatened by severe poverty um, actually lacks an adequate um, non-arbitrary rationale. They should both be seen as duties of justice. 
The difference between them simply results from the greater scale and complexity of the threat to basic interests versus basic poverty, and simply means that you need an institutionally coordinated response. Um, but it's a mistake to think that um, the two duties are different in kind. We should start thinking in terms of shared duties of justice to bring about um, the institutional coordination necessary to um, stop allowing and indeed stop inflicting severe poverty. So as I said, it's a, it's a very simple argument I'm making. Basically what I'll claim is that the distinction between... Um, well, it, the, the view that duties of justice have to be fully defined and um, individually fully enactable um, to all reflects a deep feature of our moral phenomenology, um, which is adapted to small-scale social contexts. But if we actually reflect on it and we reflect about the nature of the moral obligations that arise in response to uh, the contemporary social context in which many of the most prevalent and severe harms result from the interaction of the behaviour of millions of agents, um, then we have to question that conception of duties of justice. Um, in fact, in many ways, I'll argue, um, our ongoing shared failure to um, have abolished severe poverty is a much graver human rights violation than... Um, the failure to administer an easy rescue or um, emergency medical care to an illegal immigrant, um, even though it very much diverges from our paradigm conception of a human rights violation. Okay, so the first part of my argument is, um, section one on the handout, is to give an account of what underlies duties of easy rescue that appeals to morally minimal assumptions um, that have to be accepted by um, any moral theorist and are also a deep part of our, our prevalent moral thinking. Um, the principle that Peter Singer has given <coughs> as to what explains both kinds of obligations has come under a lot of um, criticism. And although personally I'm very sympathetic to it, I'm going to try and give a more um, ecumenical foundation. Um, and the other difference... Um, between our perspectives is that um, I'll argue that it's a, a duty of justice. Okay, so here's a morally minimal account of the rationale for duties of easy rescue. Well, the first premise is um, simply the assumption that each person has moral status and can therefore justifiably demand not to be treated in ways that are fundamentally incompatible with that moral status. Okay, that's the foundation of... Um, the whole of the whole human rights um, movement that, um, as Henry Hsu puts it, basic human rights are each person's minimal reasonable demand against the rest of humanity. There are some kinds of treatment that are just flagrantly incompatible with um, recognition of the universal moral status of persons. Okay, so basic human rights are claims by every person against treatment that is flagrantly incompatible with um, the universal moral status of persons. Now, what's so interesting and significant about easy rescue scenarios is that they constitute a context in which there is widespread recognition that failure of aid, failure to actually help someone, 
can constitute treatment that is um, indeed fundamentally incompatible with each person's moral status. Um, to go back to the right to emergency medical care, um, I think a plausible kind of what grounds that is the thought that not giving um, really basic medical care um, is treatment that um, goes against the moral status of everyone. Each person, every human being, um, is entitled to emergency medical care, right? whether or not they're um, a fellow member of your um, um, country and so on. So I take it that the fundamental intuition behind um, the thought that there is a strict duty to form easy rescues is that given the severity of the threat to a person's basic interests and the very small cost to the agent of averting that threat, failure to do so um, would be incompatible with any um, minimal recognition of the value of that person's life. And I think James Griffin gives a powerful... Um, phrase to describe this. He talks about an example in which someone refuses to toss out a life preserver to save um, the life of, a, of someone drowning. Um, and he says that that would constitute the discarding of that person's life. Now you might think that a problem with Griffin's term discarding um, is that it it's making rhetorical appeal to the wrongness of actively destroying people's lives um, and eliding the distinction between killing and allowing to die. But I think a central point is a powerful one, that it is possible to treat people in ways that are flagrantly incompatible with minimally adequate recognition of the moral value of their lives by failing to save their lives as well as by um, murder. Discarding a person's life connotes treating it like rubbish, so not undertaking even a minimal effort to um, protect someone against the, a harm that would blight or altogether destroy their life is tantamount to allow, allowing their lives to be thrown away, treating their lives as rubbish, um, as disposable. Now, clearly on a consequentialist account of general human rights, the failure to administer emergency aid is going to constitute a human rights violation. Given the severity of the harm, the person stands to suffer and the small cost of the agent of preventing that harm. But it should be emphasised that several Kantian moral theorists um, have also accepted the claim that the duty to administer emergency aid constitutes a perfect duty of justice. Um, just, for, just to explain the philosophical jargon, utilitarianism and Kantianism are the two main um, impartial moral theories that both take as their foundation the equal moral status of persons. Um, and I'll argue that they both agree that, um, or should agree, that severe poverty is a human rights violation. What um, Kantians have argued, basically they, what they try to do is say, well, Peter Singer's right that we're under a really stringent obligation to save the drowning child, and this is why, but um, we shouldn't accept his inference um, about the demands for obligations to those in need. But what they say about the drowning child case um, is that although our imperfect duties of aid... Um, uh, generally, generally allow latitude over what to do to help people. There are some um, 
contexts in which failing to help someone would be um, incompatible with genuinely adopting the maxim of promoting others' happiness or respecting persons' moral status as setters of ends. Um, because failing to help the person in this particular scenario is actually going to gravely diminish their lives. Right? Normally, if you miss out on one occasion to promote someone's well-being, there'll be other occasions on which you can do so. Um, but if someone's facing death or some other drastic harm... Um, the cost of them will be um, irrevocable. Given that the agent can prevent that harm at a small cost, then failing to do so would show grossly inadequate concern for their moral status of, as an ancestor. Okay, um, on to the second part of my argument, which is why I think the same reasoning applies to um, our shared duty to prevent severe poverty. As I briefly mentioned at the beginning, I'm using the term severe poverty to refer to lacking a realistic opportunity to obtain a subsistence income. So I'm taking the right against severe poverty to be equivalent to a right to subsistence. And the first question, I think, to ask in establishing whether or not this is a genuine um, general human right is whether the duties that would correspond to it are genuinely enactable to all. So whether this is a claim that each person um, can be plausibly held to be entitled to as a matter of basic justice. Now I take the right to subsistence to impose um, least controversially a negative duty not to actively deprive people of subsistence income, which I'll um, return to. And I also take it to impose two primary positive duties the duty to ensure that persons have an adequate opportunity to earn a subsistence income, and the duty to provide the means of subsistence to those who are unable to obtain for themselves, to earn, to earn for themselves a subsistence income as a result of, for example, severe disability, natural disaster, and so on. So if both these positive duties were fulfilled in conjunction with the negative duty not to deprive people of their means of subsistence in the first place, then each person would have an adequate opportunity to obtain a subsistence income. Um, either they'd be able to earn it for themselves, or um, in the case of short-term unemployment or long-term disability, it would be provided for them. So universal compliance with these primary duties would result in the eradication of severe poverty, understood as lacking a realistic opportunity to obtain a subsistence income. And then a centrally important question arises, are these primary duties plausibly enactable to all? To return to Anora Neal's argument, um, she makes a very quick inference, I think, from the claim that they're not individually enactable to all to um, the conclusion that they're not enactable to all. Um, but there is a crucial sense in which they are enactable to all. Um, and that's the empirical assumption on which my argument rests, but it's not a controversial empirical assumption. On widely held um, empirical um, views... Um, given the overall level of global resources, technology and feasible institutional infrastructures, there is a plurality of institutionally specified and allocated schemes of duties 
compliance with which would eradicate severe poverty, moreover at small cost to every duty bearer. So these are schemas of duties under which, for every right holder, there would be some agent or agency under a corresponding duty to respect, to respect that person's right to subsistence and able to completely discharge that duty at small cost to the duty bearer. In Henry Shear's helpful terminology, these schemas would achieve universal coverage of the right of subsistence. They'd make sure that everyone has a corresponding um, duty bearer. So under any such schema, this, the duties imposed by the general human right to subsistence would be enactable to all in the sense that for every right holder, the, the duties corresponding to their right would be enactable. Um, and that's all we need um, to establish that um, the corresponding duties are enactable to all. And I think it's just, I, I find it quite odd that um, when you're talking about uh, um, a large-scale problem like that, you would assume that the corresponding duties have to be individually enactable. But um, that, is, that assumption is, is very commonly made. Now, I'm also making two further empirical assumptions, which get more controversial, but, um, and, and we can return to them in the discussion. Um, the first is that there's also a plurality of feasible routes by which to achieve one such institutionalized, institutionalized schema through a concerted global effort. Um, and the second is that each, if, if each affluent agent in a position to do so took reasonable steps towards achieving this, it could be achieved, again, at moderate cost to each of these agents. I think Thomas Pogger has argued, in my view, quite convincingly that even a, a small subgroup of affluent agents could achieve this. Um, but my argument doesn't rest on that further empirical assumption. And I think it's worth noting that the likelihood of the eradication of severe poverty would be significantly increased if the persistence of severe poverty were widely viewed as morally unacceptable and demanding immediate abolition as um, a first priority. Which illustrates, I think, a danger of catch-22 in the appeal to feasibility constraints in moral arguments, given that what is feasible may depend in large part on agents' moral views. And it might be worth remembering Lincoln's remarks that the abolition of slavery would take so many generations that it wouldn't even, it's not even worth talking about the abolition of it. We should um, have much more modest ambitions. Um, okay, so on these empirical assumptions, the duty to avert the threat to basic interests posed by severe poverty is enactable to all in the sense that there are feasible and feasibly achievable schemas of duties under which the duty would be enactable to every right holder by the corresponding addressee. Right, so while it's not the case that each individual agent can enact the duty to all, um, it could be enacted to all if a division of moral labour were achieved through institutions. Given the overall level of global economic and social resources, it's well within our human capacity to, uh, to um, abolish severe poverty, but doing so um, requires institutional coordination. Now, achieving one of these schemas, um, economists have argued that there's a multiplicity of schemas that would achieve, achieve this. Um, but achieving any one of them involves institutionally um, allocating the corresponding duty bearers so as to match up specific right holders with specific duty bearers in such a way as to achieve universal coverage of the right subsistence. 
So what it involves is basically removing the latitude of our existing duties to those in need. Right? Currently, um, we're faced with a vast array of efficient NGOs, um, and it's very difficult to and painful to decide which ones would be best. Um, but I think rather than inferring from the latitude of our duties that they can't be duties of justice, the latitude of our existing duties is itself fundament fundamentally unjust because it's precisely because of that latitude that the duties can't be enacted to all. They could be enacted to all if an institutionally specified schema of duties were brought about. Um, but they can't be enacted to all when each individual agent um, acting in isolation tries to um, do what he or she can. So an endemic effect of our shared failure to remove the latitude of our existing um, duties to aid those suffering severe poverty is that the lives of many severely poor individuals will continue to be blighted and destroyed by inadequate subsistence even though this harm could have been avoided at small cost under feasible um, social institutions. Okay, so now for the third part of my argument, the rationale for taking agents to be under a duty to perform easy rescues also constitutes a rationale for taking affluent agents to be under a shared general duty of justice owed to all um, those whose lives are currently um, blighted by severe poverty to um, remove their poverty. Okay. Um, so just to recap, the threat to basic interests posed by inadequate subsistence could be prevented under a plurality of feasible schemas. Um, but it does require one such schema. So unless we do coordinate with one another um, so as to decide on and enforce one or other of these schemas, the duty to prevent the threat to basic interests posed by inadequate subsistence can't be discharged at all. And as a result, the lives of millions of destitute individuals will inevitably continue to be blighted or destroyed by their um, inadequate subsistence. Any avoidable time delay in agreeing to such a schema leads to the avoidable marring or destruction of lives on a vast scale. And it's just as urgent that the threat to the basic interests of each of these individuals be averted as um, the threat to the basic interests of the drowning swimmer in Singer's famous case. Now, in contrast to easy rescue scenarios, it's not important that a particular destitute individual, destitute individual be helped by any one agent or agency rather than another. So it's not morally urgent which of these schemas is adopted. Um, and I think that underpins a large part of the reason why these aren't thought of as duties of justice, where it really is central that the agent can be singled out as specifically responsible for fulfilling a certain duty to a certain individual. But although it doesn't matter which of these schemas is adopted, um, for every severely poor individual, it is urgent that there be someone under a duty to respect her right and in the position to fulfil that duty. So what is urgent is that one or other schema be adopted as soon as possible um, and that the latitude or existing duties to aid the severely poor is, is removed. As we've also seen, one such schema could be brought about and implemented at small cost to every duty bearer. 
So in just the same way as easy rescue scenarios, severe poverty poses a threat to people's most basic interests, liable to blight or altogether destroy their lives, and this threat could be prevented at small cost. So um, the same rationale that underlies the duty of easy rescue, um, I suggest, underlies a shared duty to, um, make, to take this institutional um, measure. In both cases, the failure to avert the threat to a person's basic interests, uh, given the small cost of doing that, amounts to allowing those lives to be thrown away. It's just fundamentally incompatible with minimally adequate recognition of the uh, moral value of the lives of those that do continue to be blighted or destroyed by severe poverty as a result of our ongoing shared failure to have um, adopted the institutional measures necessary to address this. Um, just want to make two points quickly to reinforce that argument, and then I'll um, briefly talk about the negative duties imposed by the right to subsistence. Okay, one argument to reinforce my claim that we should think of this as um, a duty of justice to abolish a human rights violation is by considering the widely accepted account of the role of human rights as being to protect each person's basic interests against standard threats, where standard threats are threats that are reasonably common rather than remote and feasibly eradicable at reasonable social cost. Now, this conception of human rights um, is actually reflected in the principle of easy rescue. Right? Easy rescues are thought of as arising in emergencies um, conceived as rare, random, short-term, um, and so on. So from a probabilistic ex-ante point of view, each person is actually fairly unlikely to end up in an emergency situation in need of rescue, given that they occur at random. And if they do end up in such a situation, anyone who is nearby is held to be under a strict duty to perform the easy rescue under this principle. So if you do conceive of emergencies as being um, random, rare, and short-term, then, the then the principle that bystanders um, are under a strict duty to um, prevent the threat to the person's basic interests um, actually provides a fairly efficient way of um, making sure that there is um, someone who's going to fulfil that duty. It's a, it's a fairly reliable mechanism for matching up the person in dire straits with an agent under a duty to avert the threat to basic interests. And um, this is adapted well to small-scale social contexts, right, where emergencies do occur um, at random and fairly rare um, on a small scale and short term. But in stark contrast, severe poverty is an actual and ongoing threat to the basic interests of a vast number so it affects members of a particular group who, from the outset, face drastically stunted lives and likely premature death, unless they're helped. So whereas emergencies um, that occur at random mean that, from a probabilistic ex-ante point of view, you're fairly unlikely to end up in an emergency, um, those suffering severe poverty, from the outset, are precluded from any realistic chance of a minimally decent life unless they're helped. 
And, and while there's much controversy about the level of expensive life-saving medical care that constitutes a feasible and reasonable social demand, it can't be plausibly denied that threat to life or other basic interests posed by malnutrition or lack of clean water is reasonably subject to social control. So an implication of taking our duty to aid those whose basic interests are threatened by severe poverty to be um, an imperfect duty of virtue or beneficence rather than a duty of justice corresponding to a human right is that there will be one group of persons, a very big one, um, those suffering severe poverty who have no entitlement to protection against feasibly and cheaply eradicable threats to their basic interests that preclude them from the day they're born, in many cases, from a realistic chance of a minimally decent life. So um, that's in very deep tension with the um, widely accepted account of the role of human rights as protections of basic interests against standard threats. And I think what that indicates is that the principle of easy rescue is adapted to small-scale social contexts. It simply is not adapted to the ongoing threat to the basic interests of a vast number um, posed by severe poverty. Um, and rather than inferring that the two duties are different in kind, we should um, just infer that the scale and complexity of the threat to, ba threat to basic interests posed by severe poverty calls for a more complex, large-scale response. Um, okay, the other argument, um, very briefly, to reinforce my uh, suggestion that duties of easy rescue should be seen as duties of virtue, um, and I forgive the jargon, but this is the last section on the handout, um, section four. Um, I think it's interesting to, to reflect on the, the history of moral philosophy and the way um, the distinction between duties of virtue and duties of justice has been drawn. Um, and although the distinction has been given in various different ways, there are four core features of um, duties of justice that have been given in the history of moral philosophy. Um, and basically, du uh, duties to aid the severe, those suffering severe poverty have all of them except the last one, specificity. And the only reason they lack the last one is because they require an institutionally coordinated response. Um, okay, consider the functions. The one way in which duties of justice have been... Um, differentiated from other duties is the urgency of those duties. They protect basic interests um, rather than, in, in Kant's phrase, conducing to an improved existence. The second feature of um, duties of justice is their directedness. They're owed to a right holder. Someone is actually wronged if that duty isn't fulfilled. Um, and that's because the fulfilment of the duty is demanded by um, the moral status of the right holder. So that right holder, um, in virtue of their moral status, can um, justifiably um, demand fulfilment of the duty. Now, the account I've given of what underlies duties of easy rescue and um, duties to aid those suffering severe poverty does take it to be fundamentally grounded in minimally adequate recognition of the moral status of the right holder. Um, so even if you reject a utilitarian argument about maximising the impersonal utility aggregate, um, this argument should be accepted. Um, the third feature 
which is extremely important, um, is that duties of justice are rightfully enforceable. Um, and when it comes to contemporary systemic human rights violations, which is a category that I'm arguing we ought to recognise, the enforcement of the duties is actually essential to making their implementation practicable. So that's a, a very important implication of taking them to be duties of justice. Um, now, the fourth feature that's, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, central to our paradigm conception of duties of justice is that they're specific and fully enactable. Um, and in classic general duties of justice imposed by uh, human rights, the specificity of the duty is closely linked to the first three features of the duty. Right? So consider the paradigmatic duty not to assault, not to murder, and so on. Um, it's very important that every agent... Um, complies with the specific requirement not to assault, murder, and so on, because any violation of that duty is going to cause some drastic harm to a particular individual. Similarly, in the case of the duty of easy rescue, um, you've got a specific duty, a particular kind of aid is demanded, and um, that specific aid is called for because unless it's fulfilled, that person is going to suffer a drastic and irrevocable harm. Now let's turn to our positive duties to those suffering severe poverty. Well, I've argued that they, they share the first three features of um, paradigmatic duties of justice. The only feature they lack is specificity. But in the case of these duties... Um, the first three features are connected with a general duty of justice to remove the latitude of the duties, to make them specific. Right? So in the case of paradigmatic duties, they're already specific. In the case of duties that arise in these large-scale contexts, the first three features of the duties ground um, a duty to make them specific. I'm sorry if that was a bit sort of philosophical and full of jargon, but I hope the final point um, should illustrate it a bit. Um, because the arguments I've been making don't just apply to... I, I started off by focusing on the positive duties imposed by the right subsistence because it's more controversial to make the claim that um, positive duties can constitute duties of basic justice, non-fulfillment of which constitutes a violation. But it, it's, it should be noted that the negative duties imposed by the right to subsistence also very much um, diverge from our paradigmatic conception of duties of justice. They also often lack um, the feature of specificity. Um, and for that reason, they're often not recognised as um, urgent duties of justice. Um, so... I, I hope that brings out um, the need for revising our paradigm conception um, because an implication of it is that even the negative duties imposed by the rights of assistance won't be um, adequately acknowledged as duties of justice. Now, the negative duty imposed by the rights of assistance is the duty not to deprive people of their means of subsistence.
And it's pretty clear that this duty is being violated on um, a vast scale. It's clear that much severe poverty does result from um, persons um, being deprived of any realistic opportunity to earn a subsistence income. It's also clear that if you stand back and look at the global picture, then um, the global elite are drawing resources at a rate that not only vastly exceeds their ecological share, but actively deprives the current global poor and future generations of even, of, even enough resources to be able to obtain a subsistence income. Um, and although it's very controversial how you divide up responsibility for violations of this negative duty, I think it can't be plausibly denied that um, global social institutions and compliance with social norms um, prevalent in affluent countries play a significant role. Right? So even if you reject... Um, Pogger's argument that we should see um, all of severe poverty as um, constituting um, the infliction of severe poverty on people by us. Um, I think it's clear that if you just look at certain features of um, the global social institutions, they play um, a very important role. So, for example... Um, the international resource privilege, which entitles whoever has effective power in a country, however non-democratic they are, um, and however, came, however they came to power, to sell off the resources of that country um, and spend the money on internal repression, um, uh, buying off their cronies and um, stealing the resources from um, fellow members and using the money from the resources that belongs to citizens, um, often to buy weapons with which to oppress them. It's so clearly um, non-ideal. Um, another factor that plays a significant role in deprivations of the means of subsistence is um, certain complexes of ideas that um, we were hearing about this morning. Um, I think, um, encouraged by this invisible hand um, assumption... So um, norms such as resistance by the agricultural lobby to removing protectionist trade policies, certain businesses um, to reform of tax laws that divert revenues from poor countries, um, and the general um, culture prevalent in affluent countries under which governments feel constrained by the electoral imperative of maximising economic growth um, and by the tendency of individual consumers to buy the cheapest product. Now, an, o it, an overall result of, um, these social, of, of these social institutions and social mores is that um, our behaviour plays a very important role in actively depriving um, others of their means of subsistence. Um, so it contributes to um, the blighting or destruction of persons' lives on a vast scale. But the causal chains are so complicated that it's generally the case that no single individual agent is um, responsible for depriving any particular individual of their means of subsistence. So again, um, it doesn't conform to our paradigm conception of a human rights violation as constituting a discrete action or omission perpetrated by a specific agent against a specific victim. And again, if you think about what steps you should take as an individual agent, um, 
they're not fully defined, and neither are they fully enactable to, to everyone. Right? We can easily comply with our duty not to go around assaulting and murdering, but um, if you think about your duty not to um, make any contribution to these hugely complicated causal chains which pervade so much of our everyday lives, then um, you can't. Again, the only response is going to have to be an institutional specification and um, allocation of a set of regulations, compliance with which would end the harms. Um, this isn't generally recognised as a human rights violation, um, because because of the way it does diverge from our paradigm. So, again, I think we need to think in terms of the underpinning of basic human rights, in terms of the duty not to discard persons' lives. And if you think about this at the systemic level, which I think is the level that we need to look at these kinds of harms on to have any adequate um, grasp of them, then um, you can see that certain features of our behaviour um, are playing a crucial role in the blighting and destruction of persons' lives. There's widespread empirical agreement that there are feasible reforms that could be implemented that would avoid this. Again, at small cost for every duty bearer. So I think our ongoing shared failure to accept these reforms... Um, and the resistance by agricultural lobbies and so on, should be seen for what it is as um, the discarding of persons' lives. Um, it just doesn't have that um, graphic feel because it's ongoing, it's day-to-day, -day, and it's not the case that the behaviour of any one individual in isolation causes a severe harm to any particular victim. Um, so... Um, Larissa McFarker was talking about how there tends to be a focus on genocide, and I think that's absolutely right. But the on, um, ongoing harm of um, severe poverty doesn't tend to be recognised as a human rights violation. So what we need to recognise, in conclusion, is um, a shared general duty of justice to change the social institutions and mores under which um, severe poverty is allowed and inflicted. Um, and a, so there's an overarching urgent duty to agree on one or other of these schemas of duties. It doesn't matter which one we choose, but ongoing haggling about them is unacceptable. Um, okay. How long have I, have I got? Should I just... Two minutes? Yeah. Okay, right. Um, <laughs> okay, I th just to um, round it up and spell out how this approach differs from Peter Singer's, which, as I said, I, I do find very powerful. Um, I... Hoped, I, I focused on um, what I hope to be a morally minimal um, account of the grounding of our duties um, to those whose basic interests are threatened by severe poverty. Um, 
And it should be emphasised that if this shared duty were implemented, it, it really could be done at very small cost, and that's why I think it, it constitutes the discarding of persons' lives. Now, in the meantime, of course, it remains the case that each individual agent, just by giving a small donation, can um, save or transform persons' lives. Um, and there, I think, Singer is absolutely right that we are under very stringent individual obligations to um, do that. But I think this should be seen as a backup default duty um, that, ar that arises as a result of the fundamental structural injustice. Um, so our common sense moral thinking, I think, is geared to seeing emergencies as... Um, on a small scale, and it's just a really bizarre situation we're in, in which um, we're effectively facing this ongoing emergency situation, and we could each um, so radically transform people's lives by um, giving this small donation. But um, Our first duty, I think, is a shared duty of justice to um, remove the injustice. Um, yeah, and just one other point to flag, and then I'll finish. Um, I th the one, one of the main reasons I think we should... Well, there are many reasons I try to argue why we should see this as a duty of justice. Um, but most fundamentally, it's grounded in um, minimally adequate recognition of the moral status of every human being, which um, does have to be acknowledged by um, any moral theory. So uh, we should see it in terms of wronging. And then, so even if you do reject an ongoing impersonal obligation to maximise the good, um, I think this general duty of justice is, um, um, should be accepted. <laughs> okay. Right.